1: This is The Guardian.
2: The GPS is telling us, oh, 50 metres, 20 metres, and then all of a sudden you see, oh, my God, this one's active. What's a
0: hard-working animal who builds high-stakes sandcastles in the harshest environment in Australia and has a complicated parenting style? Hi there, and welcome to Look At Me. I'm Ray Johnston. Here in Australia, the celebrities of the animal kingdom are the koalas, the kangaroos, the emus. So on this show, we're putting the spotlight on our lesser known, but no less deserving wildlife. My co-host, certified nature nerd and reluctant ecologist, Chris McCormack, is here with me from Remember the Wild. Hey, Chris, any clues for what today's animal is?
1: Well, Ray, this animal's actually quite a bit like you. It's very tough, it's very oh. hardworking, and it actually has a big following. A lot of people love it.
0: Oh, lovely. I mean, I also have a complicated parenting style, so I'm curious to learn more about this animal. <laughs>
1: This is an incredibly hard-working animal. Even from the very first moment that it emerges into the world, it is working incredibly hard.
2: You hatch out and, you know, you kick madly. And every time you kick, you find, you know, that sand comes underneath you and your head goes a bit higher. You'll find that if you keep your head down that there's, you know, a little bit more of an airspace formed and you can breathe. But it's a pretty claustrophobic existence for, you know, probably several hours. But then you come out and on a typical day, say in December in the Mallee, it'll be in the high 30s. There's no water anywhere to speak of. Uh, what you have are a few instincts in your in your belly, you have access to some yolk still. So you've got a perhaps a couple of days' supply to go and find some food. So that's the first thing you do. Typically, I guess, you will, you'll, you'll roll down the side of the mound, um, find some shade and just sit there for a little while, panting, getting your, your, your strength back, because you've just been through a bit of an ordeal. You won't hang around the mound, though, for very long. Uh, As soon as you've regained a bit of strength, you'll wander off and you will be looking for food. That's your, your highest priority now, and you will naturally be pecking at anything contrasty on the ground. As evening comes, you'll have this huge desire to get off the ground, but on your first night you won't probably be able to. You've had an extended period in the egg where you've grown wings, you haven't actually grown much of a tail you still have to grow tail feathers so you have this this little little fluffy feathery bum uh but your wings are fully formed and then every day you'll find you can fly a bit higher and indeed every night you you will you'll roost a little bit higher in a tree until eventually you'll be in the canopy
1: What do you reckon?
0: So we've got a bird and it's in the desert. That's what I'm hearing. And the eggs are laid in the sand or in a in a mound of sand. Oh, gosh. that's And it can't fly at first but then it can. And it's mostly formed within the egg. So it must be in there for quite some time. Oh, am I close? I'm close, aren't I?
1: Yeah, I mean, you just described what what was already said to you, so I don't know if you're close. You're just repeating things.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to pretend that I've come up with this myself. Look, I'm trying to think of what birds are in the desert. It's a flying bird, so it's not a flightless bird. So we're not talking about emus or anything like that. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of flying birds that are in the desert.
1: In that now, te- technically, technically, it's in the Mallee, the Mallee region of Ah,
0: Australia. the Mallee region.
1: Okay, and that's key. The word, the word Mallee itself is key.
0: So, tell me about the Mallee region.
1: So, the Mallee region is this pretty amazing sort of diverse uh, area that stretches from southern west Western Australia through to the sort of north corner of Victoria. And it is uh, sort of characterised by the mallee form or the mallee habit of the eucalypt trees that live in that region. So they sort of they don't grow very tall, and they sort of have this spreading, almost uh, you know, shrub-like appearance to them. And and that's that that's where the mallee gets its name is for for those mallee eucalypts.
0: Beautiful. And yeah, so this bird. This bird sounds really. It does sound really tough. It's dealing with some pretty intense early days of its life. Are the are the parents around? It doesn't sound like the. It sounds like the parents just lay the eggs and then leave them to it.
1: They are not around. Uh, but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, Ray. Let me tell you a bit more about the family, the group of species that this animal comes from first. It's a particularly weird kind of bird, you see, because it's part of a family called the megapodes,
2: which translates to Bigfoot. There's something like 10,000 species of birds you know, in the world and there's just one tiny little family that doesn't use body heat to incubate eggs and they're the megapodes.
1: This is ecologist Dr Joe Benchemish.
2: And... Uh, you know, they're mostly in the tropics, which makes sense because there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of moisture and there's a lot of plant material. The megapodes, use a couple of different sources of heat. The simplest is just warm sand. They just find a warm spot on a, on a black sandy beach or perhaps in um, in areas where the ground is heated, you know, from volcanic activity... Uh, and that's pretty simple. You dig a hole and you put your eggs in there and you bury it and you go away. And the next level is to um rake up a whole lot of leaves, which is usually a pretty easy thing to do in the jungles, and let them rot. And as they rot they uh, they produce heat as they decompose. And what things like the brush turkey and the scrub fowl do is is, is they rake up all of these leaves and then they they, they look for warm spots within these mounds. In the case of the scrub fowl, these can be huge, you know, because they can go on for generations and generations. Um, but in any case, they find a warm spot, lay their eggs in there and um, and that's pretty well much it.
0: And then they just leave them and then they hatch and they have to work out how to look after themselves and feed themselves and how do they even know what to do? Because a lot of the animal behaviours of of young animals are copied from the parents or from family around them. So are they just living on instinct in those early days?
1: Well, it seems that way, yeah. It seems like, you know, completely driven by instincts. But, you know, the you say, like, the parents just, just kind of leave them. Look, in, in certain parts of the world, in, in most places where megapodes live, it's sort of easy, right? Like, they just ah, scrape a bunch of leaves together. That'll kind of create this hot humid composty environment and the eggs will incubate and then they'll hatch and whatever I'm done. You know, a prime example of that bird is the brush turkey that you, you know, another another bird getting about, you know, the bins occasionally in Sydney <laughs> and surrounds like so, you know, and it's it's got things relatively easy. Um but it's not that simple for these birds in the Mallee.
2: But there's one species that Kind of breaks all the, the common sense rules and does this in the arid zone of Australia. And that's the Mallee fowl. And in order to do that, it really has to be very sophisticated in um, in developing the right temperature regime to incubate its eggs. Um, and it's been remarkably successful.
0: So we're talking about the Mallee fowl.
2: The
1: Mallee fowl.
0: Mally fowl. I feel a little bit bad because I feel like I've painted the adult Mallee fowl as a bit of a, you know, deadbeat parents situation where it actually seems like they do put a lot of care and love and attention into making sure the, you know, incubation period of their babies is as nice as possible. It seems like a lot of work to get this nest situation into the point that it needs to be for them to be able to hatch and survive.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, don't feel too bad because, you know, in the scheme of things, there are some aspects of parental care in this bird that, you know, they're questionable, but obviously a, a <laughs> massive investment of energy in this egg stage, right? And like to do, because essentially, as I said, like a scrub turkey chucks some leaves together, it's a wet, humid environment pretty much takes care of itself um but in the mallee you know it's it's hot during the day it's cold at night and you know rainfall is always an issue so there's there's a lot more involved for these birds to be able to do this in this arid environment
2: so they dig a hole basically they fill it with perhaps a cubic meter of of, of leaf litter allow that to become completely saturated And then lock the moisture in by covering the whole thing with sand. And then they basically, both the male and the female together, will walk to and from the mound constantly, up and down. And as they're walking away from the mound, they're they're kicking leaf litter behind them towards the mound. And when they get to the other end, they just turn around, walk back to the mound, turn around again and start kicking. So that line of leaf litter slowly moves into the mound.
1: So, Ray, you heard there, Joe, describing the work that the male and female malefowl have to do, going up and back, getting all of this leaf litter from the surrounding area and putting it into this big hole, this big crater that they've dug in the sand and that, that, that can take a long time to do that. It's pretty impressive. I've, I've got a video of two malefowls building a mound. Have a look at this.
0: Oh wow, they really are big, aren't they? They're they're, t- they're staunch. That's the way I'd describe them.
1: You can see Ray, that train of leaf litter.
0: Yeah, you can see. It's it's like a creek of leaves running towards this You weren't kidding when you said crater. This is like a couple of meters wide. It's huge. They have some strong legs.
1: <laughs> Very strong legs.
0: So how long do they spend building this mound? How long does it take to you know, get all of the leaves into the nest?
1: It can take months. Months? It sort of depends. Like, if they're in a hurry, if the opportunity's right, go, 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 they can do it in a couple of weeks. Um, but it can take a very, very, very long time. Um, and of course, partly that's probably influenced by how much leaf litter there actually is in the, the, the environment around where they've chosen to build their mound.
0: Yeah, they'd have to choose an area where there are a lot of trees so that they do get enough leaf litter that they can actually build this mound. I I can imagine it would be tough if there was vegetation cleared and they couldn't gather enough together to build a nest. They just kind of abandon an area if they can't get what they need to and try somewhere else or do they keep persevering?
1: Well, you know, that's one of the problems with uh, increasing bushfires because the first thing to disappear, of course, are the leaves on the trees and the leaves on the ground.
0: Yeah. You know, and there is a lot of talk about and there's a lot of need to be able to get rid of that leaf litter periodically so that there aren't big bushfire threats. But obviously that would have an immediate impact on animals like the mallee fowl that rely on it for their habitat, breeding cycle, all of that stuff. Yes, it's nice to see that this is a family effort as well. You don't just have the mum building the nest while the dad takes off and tries to find another female to mate with, like most animals we hear about. Both of them are getting involved in building the home. It's, it's, that's nice to see.
1: So how many eggs does the average female put into a mound in a season?
2: Um, on average, it would probably be around 20.
1: And h- how big are these eggs compared to her?
2: Each egg is roughly, uh, say, 10% of her body weight. Yeah, it's a substantial investment. It's not that different from giving birth, you know, as a human being giving birth, you know, every few days. That's the most amazing thing of all because the mallee in summer is, um, is a pretty harsh environment, at least for us, and that she can continue to lay through the summer is really, you know, a testament to how, how amazingly tough these birds are.
0: All right, I take that back. The male should just be the one making this mound, absolutely. If you have to give birth 20 times 10% of your body weight, you deserve to just hang out under a tree while your nest gets built for you. That is horrific.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. And remember, like, all those all those eggs... They're full of water, they're full of liquid, you know, and the yolk. Yeah. And so she has to find enough food to be able to, you know, food and water to produce these eggs, the the, the yolk, the liquid that's in these eggs. And sort of once they've done that initial nest building, she's then full-time feeding duties. She's just looking for food all the time and then laying eggs, and the male is then in charge of maintaining the mound.
0: So out of those 20 eggs, how many of them will hatch?
1: That's a good question. I, You know, if they've done their job right, uh, more or less all of them.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, there are problems, obviously, with, you know, if foxes and things like that manage to dig into the mound. Um, but the egg stage is, as, as we've seen, that's when mum and dad are really looking after you. It's once you're out of the egg, uh, your (laughs) your chances rapidly diminish.
2: They come out of the eggs. They have to find their own way out of the mound. Once they get to the surface, um, they're off on their own. They they, there seems to be very little, if any, recognition by the parents of their of their young. you know, we've we've seen footage of the, the parents basically kicking the young out, just as if they were just another bit of leaf or something in the mound.
0: Wow! There are no maternal instincts with this bird at all, is what I'm hearing.
1: The, the mound, the mound it sort of represents... everything you care about and it's amazing like i've watched some of this footage and there'll be like a maybe a male male fowl, and he's on the mound and he's kind of regulating the temperature and he's scratching around and then all of a sudden one of his children pops up and he's like ah, you know (laughs) hello world (laughs) and (laughs) and he's like oh what is that and he just kind of (laughs) kicks it off the mound and goes get out of here i'm trying to clean this mound um
0: Yeah, Get out of my mound. (laughs) I'm trying to look after my mound. It sounds like they just get tough through (laughs) trauma, which is an awful way to become tough. So they put all of this care into this mound. They're laying 20 eggs at a time and most of them are hatching because they've made this incredible mound. But then once they've hatched, they're just totally on their own. What are their chances for survival like?
1: they 're pretty low you know if you let's say you 've got twenty twenty chicks coming out of a mound you 'd be lucky to have um, you, you'd probably count on one hand the number that survive and that's that's probably quite a quite a good amount actually you'd be lucky to have one or two um, yeah it's very hard and you know but if you think about it uh these are cryptic birds they live in an environment where they need to blend in if you were like a mother. Mother duckling with with a bunch of chicks in tow, uh, you'd stand out to predators. It'd be very difficult to look after them anyway, so they're really trying to give them all that they can in that in that first period in the egg and then you know prepare them, prepare them for life in that way.
0: So to have the best chance at survival, they really do need to just do it on their own.
1: Yeah, they need to go out, and um, you know it's a numbers game. You know it's 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 counterintuitive to us, of course, because we invest so much in you know our our kids. They take forever to grow up, and they're forty five, and they're still in the basement, you know, at home. Like, (laughs) yeah.
0: Look, I got a nineteen year old here. I hear you. (laughs) And this pair, the mum and dad pair, do they stay together, or do they go find other mates for their next nest?
1: Generally, uh, they will stay together. You know, sometimes birds um, that are fairly monogamous, they might split up if they're not being successful together. They might say, you know what, this is not working. But, uh, <laughs> it's not they- working.
0: Amicable divorce.
1: But, uh, you know, the, the males are, are very protective of the females. They're very protective of their territory. And uh, male fowls, you know, those big clawed feet uh, can be used uh, to deadly effect uh, during, during fights
0: good protector and after they've built this one nest laid these 20 eggs moved on are they just straight away building another nest how many times will they do this throughout their lifetime
1: i think joe says at some point they might live for you know nearly 20 years and so if you're doing that let's say 15 years of you know a reproductive years um 20 eggs um yeah you know that's it's a big effort but they they will often return to the same mound so they'll finish with that mound in the season they'll stay around the area and then when the breeding season comes back they might say yep we liked this mound let's fix her up and go again
0: I wonder if the adults, once they grow up, ever go back to that mound as well and encounter their parents and they have this big, giant, mallee family reunion with hundreds of them all hanging out with each other. That'd be lovely.
1: That would be lovely. I suspect the way it would go more is that they stumble across mum and dad's mound and are immediately attacked and told to go away. Um (laughs) Yeah.
0: Oh, that's awful! You've ruined this for me.
1: <laughs> you always
0: well, do this. I, don't, I don't. imagine these wonderful, <laughs> wonderful romantic scenarios of all these animals living peacefully together, and you're like, no, that no, they're all going to die.
1: Well, I, I don't, I don't write the rules. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. But um, well, you know, I, I was once told about this brutal story. Uh, there was a male and a female malefowl in a pen there in a large pen. They were a breeding pair and another male came up to the pen because he wanted the female and the two males had a bit of a fight through the wire and the male on the outside grabbed the head of the male on the inside, pulled it through the wire and and broke his neck.
0: Oh wow, that is brutal.
1: So I wasn't sure if we should put that in the podcast, (laughs) but um, maybe we need it for context.
0: No, I think I think this is the truth. This is what people need to know about bigfoot birds. We're bigfoot uncovering birds. it right now.
1: Hey, <laughs> you know, resources are thin on the ground out there. You've need you need to protect your patch. And if you've got a good thing going, you've got a good mound going, you've you've got a good partner, you're working well together, then, you know, you've got to protect that. And it's actually really I've I've been out there in the Mallee and of of um of seeing the males. They do this display if they think there's another male around or they can hear another male, they kind of tuck their head down and they kind of puff their body out and they kind of go, you know, and do this big, you know, deep call that will travel really far. Um, we don't
0: need to hear the real noise now. We'll just get you to do it.
1: No, just use that one. <laughs> the birdos listening will be like, that's not quite right. <laughs> so. They're, you know, they're they're intense. They're amazing, and they're intense birds.
0: Yeah, they're, they're, if it was a family reunion, it would be the kind where you know this side of the family doesn't talk to this side of the family. You can't have this auntie near this uncle. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fractured family reunion. It would it, be. <laughs> th- th-
1: there's some indication that the chicks and potentially sort of the, you know, the t- the teenage adolescent malefowl hang around in groups and we don't really know what's going on there like are they learning are they sort of developing social relationships are they potentially pairing up for later in life are they learning from one another we we don't know what's happening but once once they hit adulthood and they're, they're in the breeding stage it's um it's it's, it's us us two against it's the world <laughs> they're a power couple you know they're a rural power couple
0: so you mentioned earlier that the mallee is getting more and more rare Why is that exactly?
1: Well, I think, you know, Ray, as with so many animals in Australia, it is a multifaceted issue. But the simplest answer and probably the main driver is that they're losing habitat or they've lost a lot of habitat. You know, we have for over a century now converted much of the Mallee into agricultural land.
2: They are still in a lot of the places, in most of the places where they used to be, where there's still habitat. Um And even in these small isolated patches, there are you know there are often still Mallifale there. So it's not like these birds are really delicate and kind of a bit wussy and uh, quite the contrary. you know, we've flung everything at them and they're still trying and they're still there. So we need to to shift the balance a bit, but you know for a bird like the Malifowl, I think there's every chance of keeping them. Um, if we can work out in each patch what, you know, what they really require.
1: In terms of actually understanding what's going on with mallee fowl populations across Australia, you know, the biggest barrier is uh, they're an elusive bird. They're really cryptic. I mean, when when they turn a certain way in the, in the bush, they just disappear. Like their feathers just blend in with the leaf litter and everything around them. And so one of the biggest barriers to understanding what's going on with their populations is actually being able to cover all that ground, all that territory in which they live, find them and, you know, get out into what are quite harsh environments at times to study them. So Joe and many wow. others are involved in what is potentially the largest single species citizen science project in Australia, potentially the world. And they have hundreds of volunteers who go out at least once a year in this big effort to monitor Malifau mounds because we know that they'll be at the mounds. So we find the mounds and then year after year we come back and we say, are they still working on this one or have they moved on to another one? And how are they doing? And how many, how many birds are breeding? And, you know, it's a really beautiful sort of thing, these mounds, because... They sort of exist at the edge. There's sort of this liminal area between our world, our ability to perceive these birds and the and the birds and their world. Because you'll just you'll never find a mallee fowl if you're just wandering around looking for one that's not on a mound. If it's outside of the breeding season, <laughs> you're not gonna find a mallee fowl Unless you've spilt a literally a truckload of grain on the side of a road, <laughs> you won't see one.
0: It has happened. And that has happened. <laughs>
1: it has happened. Yes. And there are stories around Patrick Wallach in Victoria of 70 Malifowl gathering oh, along wow. the highway to eat canola grain. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> How do they know? How do they find out? Who told them? Was there some kind of messenger they app? How did they all smell know? It. I don't know. <laughs>
0: There's been a grain smell, boys. Off we go. <laughs>
1: So to monitor these birds, you go out and you know, you're know you standing on the shoulders really of what other people have done in the past, finding different mounds. And so you're going to an area and you'll say, okay, I've got a GPS location here. And it says, there's a mound here and I've it was active last year or the year before. Let's see if, if they're using it to breed this year. And so you trek out into the bush for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers, and then you come across the mound and then what you're looking for are signs that it's either being used or if it's being abandoned. So I spoke to Louise and Michael, who are two people who are really invested in the Malifaux, and they do this volunteering work as well.
2: You might find a feather, and that's really exciting. or you might find some scat, and you know, just looking at some Malifaux poo is pretty <laughs> exciting as well. That's a little reward. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. A lot of it is that. That hint of a promise, that thrill of the chase of, oh, is this, one, is this next one going to be active? Will we see the birds? I remember the feeling when we're out monitoring and, you know, you're coming towards the end of the day, getting a bit tired, maybe run out of snacks, you know, <laughs> we got a few mounds to go. And then, you know, we'll come up to close. You know, the GPS is telling us, oh, 50 metres, 20 metres. And then all of a sudden you see, oh, my God, this one's active. And you just instantly go quiet and start looking around to see if the bird is anywhere because you feel like you're being watched and you, you must be being watched.
0: <laughs> it's so wholesome to feel like finding a piece of poo is rewarding. Like that is that is just so lovely.
1: Yeah. Uh, ecologists are weird. Uh, <laughs> you can learn a lot about someone from their poo. Uh, as. as so. <laughs> Sorry. You
0: can learn a lot about someone by how they feel about poo and different kinds of poo and how they find that poo. <laughs> citizen science is, is a term that you do hear thrown about a lot for a lot of different kinds of conservation projects, astronomy, like all different areas of science. You see citizen science projects. What kinds of people are involved in them? though? And, you know, is it something that anyone can get involved in? Do you have to have qualifications? Do you have to have some base knowledge about the Mallee fowl to go out looking for these mounds? Because I can imagine that you wouldn't just want anyone just trampling over them, disturbing them, potentially creating damage.
1: You don't have to be qualified. You just have to be healthy enough and, and happy enough and, and, and sensible enough to walk around in the bush. These people include locals living in the Mallee, they include people that drive up from, you know, Melbourne or they come from Perth or or what have you. And they they're, they're just invested. They just find this bird amazing and and a lot of them have described it to me as bushwalking with purpose.
2: I
0: like that. That's good. I go hiking regularly. So that sounds good. That sounds like an extra activity I could add to hikes maybe. Yeah.
1: You know, it's a real community. They all get together. They all camp together. They all they all cook together, and they all they all go through the data. And you get to see the data coming back, and you get to see the trends, and you get to see what you're contributing to. And it's a real family, and it's it's been going for decades.
0: It's wonderful. A big happy camping family looking for mallee fowl poop.
1: <laughs> so I've you know I've I've been out there looking for mallee fowl. I you know I remember a feather blew across a mound once before I'd seen a bird in person. I just like clambered across across the ground like a freak like to grab this feather because I just want I was like oh it's a feather it's it, this belonged to the bird the bird is real and alive and I imagine it was just watching me through the bush like wow. who is this creep creeping on my mound patting my <laughs> feather like Gollum <laughs> with a ring
0: it really is like finding a tuft of fur from Bigfoot or something isn't it
1: <laughs> it is and you know there's What's amazing about birds like this is there are differences in their temperament. There are differences in their personality. I have set up bird hides around multiple mounds and I have to sneak into them, you know, at a safe distance, at a comfortable distance. And I've gone, you know, for for weeks at a time doing this and just trying to get this footage. And then I remember I just drove up almost next to a mound. It was just off the side of a road. I walked out and it was just a bird sitting on this mound and he was I was just stood 3 meters from him he looked at me he didn't give a rats and he just kept scratching and this was after I'd done all this effort and I'm like this is insane you Bastards, <laughs> the amount of work off putting putting up hides and sneaking around. And this bird's just like, Hey, man, what's up? You're like, yeah, no worries. You can look if you They're like. They're like, I don't
0: care about you. I'm building my mound. He Leave me care. alone. He was you like, come, that- come near my mound. I will tear you to pieces. Let's yeah. Stay back there. We're all good. Yeah, he
1: was like, That's an ugly kangaroo, <laughs> but whatever.
0: <laughs> just so intensely unbothered by your presence. That is beautiful. Chris, it does sound like there are some very dedicated people out there looking for and looking after the mallee fowl.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, Joe's chief among them. He's been doing this for, for 30-odd years more and he, he's still in love with these birds. What's your favourite thing about mallee fowl?
2: My favourite thing about mallee fowl, it's probably that you, that you can find mounds quite you know, without too much trouble um, and sit back read a book if you like, you know, at a respectable distance and just watch them work. They accept us, that they, they don't react with, well, you know, some of them anyway, don't react with sort of panic and fear. You know, that's a very endearing quality, to be able to sit by and just watch an animal do its thing, particularly something that's so unique and so special and becoming rare as well.
0: Oh, how beautiful. I might have to head up to the Mallee for my next hike and go see if I can spot a Mallee fowl along the way. Next time, we'll meet a new animal that's tiny, bouncy and has horny head lumps, so make sure you tune in. Look at me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation. It's hosted by me, Ray Johnston on Darra Country, and Chris McCormack on Jarjawarang Country. It's also produced by Chris from Remember the Wild, and Jane Lee and Camilla Hannon at Guardian Australia. Camilla also did the mixing and sound design. Catch you next time.